This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. Chris Foster. India's space agency made history as the first nation to successfully land a craft on the far side of the moon, the dark side. The fourth nation to land anywhere on the moon after the United States, Russia, which was then the Soviet Union, and China. Besides bragging rights, this race to the moon's south pole is about resources, water and rare earth metals that could be under the surface. A Russian spacecraft crashed there four days before the successful Indian landing. In between those attempts, we spoke with former NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine about how those resources might be collected, used, brought back to Earth, and supposedly shared. We edit the conversation down for the regular weekday rundown podcast and radio show. It's coming up now is the whole thing. Thanks for listening and subscribing. If you don't subscribe, please do. Now Jim Bridenstine on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Um, Jim Bridenstine, former NASA Administrator, thanks for coming back on the Fox News Rundown. All right, Jim. So Russia failed. India is trying again to land a spacecraft on the on the south side of the, on the south pole of the moon. What's behind this race to get there now? So I think there's there's a lot of interest in the moon. Um, we we have now discovered that there's hundreds of millions of tons of water ice, especially on the south pole of the moon. Water ice represents H two O, which hydrogen, of course, is fuel. Oxygen, of course, is life support. It's air to breathe and H2O is water to drink. So um, there's a lot of, we think about that as just pure resources. The the life support capabilities um, that exist with the water ice are pretty significant. It's also true that, you know, we think about rare earth metals that have a lot of value for a lot of different um, industrial activities, as well as, um, you know, supercomputers and other things. A lot of those materials are not earth materials at all. They're we we call them rare earth um, elements, but they're but they're actually asteroid impacts, and in many cases from billions of years ago. The challenge with the earth is that you find these rare earth elements um, very sparingly, and when you do find them, um, they're in limited amounts. Well, the, that's because Earth has a very active geology, a very active hydrosphere, a very active atmosphere. Um, and all of these things mean that whatever impacted the Earth billions of years ago, um, it's not there today. So it's 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 in very trace amounts. Well, the Moon is is unique in the sense that it doesn't have an active geology or an active hydrosphere. What that means is that anything that impacted the Moon billions of years ago is today right where it was billions of years ago, including rare Earth metals. So. Um, Although they wouldn't be rare Earth, they'd be rare lunar. Right. Uh, then again, if we find them in large deposits, not even that rare. <laughs> so, uh, so I think there's a lot of interest in just exploring and discovering what materials are there, both from a, a human exploration perspective, as far as life support, but also, you know, could there be very valuable materials that could have tremendous value here on Earth? Well, you've already taught me what a minute and a half into this, you've already taught me that rare Earth metals aren't actually native to earth that's that's new to me and very very interesting now i'll get back to the the water part in a minute because that's interesting and in in, in important in a different way but if there are resources on the moon to, to be used back on earth as opposed to used on moon missions or bases how can it be brought back i mean are there are there plans for cargo ships to the moon and back that i presume this stuff is heavy and cumbersome yeah. to transport Absolutely. So we think about, for example, Starship. I mean, the whole purpose of SpaceX's Starship vehicle is to increase the amount of mass that can be taken to the moon 
And so you, by doing that, you re, the, 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 the key formula that you're trying to solve for is what is the cost per unit mass to deliver to the moon? Starship is this super massive vehicle. And so because it's so large, the cost per unit mass comes way down. And that so it's it's not just mass, it's also volume. And 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 um Starship is really trying to bring down the cost per unit mass to the moon. Uniquely, Starship is also capable of bringing things back from the moon. Um, and because it's got such big mass and volume capabilities, it it could it could be a game changer when it comes to bringing material home. So and again, I'm not saying that that's what they're doing or that's what their plans are. Um, you know, they're, they're right now they're building vehicles at the behest of NASA to, you know, eventually deliver cargo and, and humans to the moon. Um, but in, in the long term, that's a commercial vehicle that can be used for all sorts of things that are not necessarily scientific in nature. Maybe it's just the capability of living on the moon for long periods of time for people that just want to go on vacation, or maybe it is in fact, you know, using, using these capabilities for mining and bringing things back to earth. It, it almost, it feels a little like the old West, um, you know, prospectors rushing to, to find oil or find gold, except in this case, it's, it's nations. Yeah, I think that's true. I would say, and as, as it relates to the United States, um, largely because of the work that I did as the NASA administrator, the goal is not for nations to necessarily be the only beneficiaries of the architecture that NASA is building. We want private companies to, to work alongside us. So, for example, NASA is building architecture that includes what's called the Lunar Gateway. Think of a space station in orbit around the moon where you can have landing systems going back and forth to the moon between the moon and the gateway constantly. So you have basically round trip vehicles so that those vehicles can go back up to the gateway, get more fuel, go back down, take, take you know, it could be humans, but it also it could be robotic rovers or other landers that maybe hop. So there's all kinds of different ways of getting access to the moon. And what NASA is building is, is infrastructure that commercial companies can benefit from. So it's really not just a just a, a race between nations. It's a it's an opportunity that NASA is building for commercial companies to participate in more broadly. So this landing on the the far side of the moon, uh, particularly important toward that end because of the resources that we that we know they are they are presumed there. Why has nobody made it there before? Is it just is it too hard? Is there something now making it more possible, or is this just about urgency with with more interest? So landing on the moon in and of itself is difficult. Uh, the United States of America for a long period of time after Apollo did not have in its policy mix a, a, you know, an objective to go to the moon, let alone the far side of the moon. Um, and so we've been focused on Mars and we've been landing on Mars now for a number of decades with spirit, opportunity, curiosity, perseverance, um, and now we've even got a, a helicopter on Mars <laughs> um, called Ingenuity. So um, lo lots of development when it comes to going to other planetary bodies. But the moon was not in the, you know, in, in the, the policy objectives of the United States. Um, President Trump put into place Space Policy Directive 1 as one of his first um, initiatives, and that was to go back to the moon sustainably. In other words, we're going to stay on the moon. We're going to go with commercial partners. We're going to go with international partners. 
but we're also um, we're also going to go with the first woman to the moon. Um, and we named the program Artemis after the goddess of the moon in Greek mythology. And she also was the twin sister of Apollo. So um, I guess the, the bottom line is we now have an objective to get to the moon. We, we now know in 2009, we discovered the water ice for the first time. And now we know that it's there in large volumes. And that gives us kind of more interest in learning what, what can we discover today that we've never known before. And there's a lot about the moon that we still don't know. How is the moon, uh, governs not exactly the right word, but you know what I mean. Tell me about, well, there are the Artemis Accords. Tell people what those are yeah. and how it's supposed to work. So the Outer Space Treaty is very clear that you cannot appropriate the moon or other celestial bodies for national sovereignty. So the United States of America, we put a flag on the moon in 1969. And of course, we did so with our other five moon missions as well. Uh, but that does not declare that the moon belongs to the United States because we are signatories to the Outer Space Treaty and we cannot appropriate the moon for national sovereignty. So the, the, what, what does that mean? Um, we think about the ocean. We can't own the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean for national sovereignty either. However, if we extract tuna from the ocean, we can own the tuna that we extract from the ocean. And that, that's true for the country. It's also true for private industry. If we extract energy from the ocean, a private company can own the energy that comes from the ocean, even though that private company and the country from whence that private company comes, um, they, they don't own the ocean. Those same principles should apply to the moon. So um, you, you can't own the moon, but what you can do is you can apply your own effort, your own equity, your own sweat and based on the work that you put in if you extract resources from the moon you can own those resources that you extract from the moon um, and that's a key principle that you know we we put into the artemis accords when we created the artemis program to go to the moon sustainably with commercial partners and international partners the goal was to enable lots of different companies and countries to have access to the moon but we also wanted to establish what the rules are. And the rules are, yes, you can extract resources. Yes, you can use those resources. But what you can't do is you can't own the moon. So the same principles that apply over international waters and in international airspace also apply on the moon. So far, 28 countries have signed on to the Artemis Accords. Those are all countries that want to participate with the United States in the Artemis program. And, uh, and we're very excited about what that means for the future. Who's to say that whatever China, for example, um, lands on the South Pole, stakes a claim, says this is our area, it's ours, and work to sabotage anyone else? How is it enforced? Yeah, so that's the thing. It's There's really no enforcement mechanism, um, and there hasn't been. We Look, the outer, the outer Space Treaty has existed since 1969. And um, there's all kinds of provisions in there about, you know, if you destroy a satellite and you're liable, you've got you've got to pay for it. If if one of your satellites re-enters the atmosphere and damages property on the Earth, you know, there, there's a liability convention in the Outer Space Treaty. But it's only been enforced once in history. Um, and, and it was in the 1970s. Um, and it was like a it was like a satellite tank or something that re-entered and hit Canada. And uh, Canada got like a three three million dollar settlement from the former Soviet Union. 
Um, but it, but that's the only time. But things are happening in space all the time where satellites are breaking apart. People don't understand why some satellites quit working. And the assumption is, well, maybe the satellite just quit or maybe it hit some kind of micro meteor or something. Um, and the, but the reality is there 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 are there are nefarious things happening in space. Sure. Um, because people can take advantage of that. So we want, and that's why we created the Space Force and U.S. Space Command and Space Development Agency and other things when when I happened to be at NASA. But I think when we think about the future, we've got to establish rules where people understand um, basic basic principles of international governance when it comes to space. I'm a Navy pilot by trade. And when I'm flying over international waters and I get queried by a, a foreign country that might not be friendly to the United States, I use the language due regard. I am a sovereign U.S. naval aircraft operating due regard in international airspace. If I use that word due regard, that sets in place many decades of law and precedent that says I can operate here and you can operate here too. We're not going to interfere with each other. We're going to respect each other's ability to freely operate, but we're not going to interfere. It's basically a, a non-interference kind of international standard. Well, that that's the way the moon should be organized as well. The, uh, the United States can operate there. China can operate there. Commercial companies can operate there, but they need to operate under the principle of due regard. You don't interfere with me. I don't interfere with you. Um, and we can both work together, just like we do in international waters and in international airspace. The question that you you brought up though is enforcement. Um, you know that that's that's yet to be determined. It's one of the reasons why it's important for all nations to come to an agreement on how to how to be able to live and work, not just on the moon, but eventually other celestial bodies, maybe Mars, um, because there's going to be some interest in in the United States going to the South Pole. China wants to go to the South Pole of the moon, for example. On Mars, it's going to be the North Pole because there's lots of water ice on the North Pole of Mars. Um, and, and we even believe we have found liquid water under the surface of Mars. Liquid. That's hugely valuable. Um, not, not just from a, a, a resources perspective, but from a, you know, a scientific knowledge perspective. Anywhere there's water on Earth, there's life. It doesn't matter if it's a raindrop or, or whatever it is. Um, the question is, is that true on Mars? And we don't know, but we do know, we think, we're highly confident that we've discovered water 12 kilometers under the surface of Mars where that water is protected from the radiation of deep space. And there is a chance that there could be some kind of microbial life in that water on another planetary body, which I think would be phenomenal to discover. Um, and if, if if it was discovered, it would it would change you know, history books and science books going forward. Does the establishment of a permanent base on Moon or in Moon's orbit, does that appreciably help getting to and from Mars? Or is the distance between Earth and the Moon so negligible that compared to the distance between the Moon and Mars that it really doesn't matter that much? Does Would it be a huge logistical help? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a tremendous help. So, um, you know, basically, a lot of the NASA scientists and engineers will tell you, look, if you can get to low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere in the solar system <laughs> because it doesn't take that much energy after you get out of Earth's atmosphere. It doesn't take that much energy to get to a lot of places. 
And by the way, if you're in lunar orbit, it's really easy to push out a lunar orbit and go lots of different places. So the answer is yes. If you can stage activity capability um, in these places where it's it's easy to push out from, uh, then yes, uh, there's there's huge advantage to establishing. You know, we call it the gateway today, but o over time you could accumulate capability there where you build a larger space station that eventually pushes out to to maybe even orbit or land on Mars. Jim Bridenstine, former NASA administrator. Jim, please come back on next time uh, we have more space stuff to talk about. You bet. Anytime. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.